you guys sound like all the Texas teams lost yesterday. What's up with that? Good morning and welcome to Grace. There it is. When you came in today, you were handed a worship guide. On the back of that worship guide is a communication card. If you're new with us today, we're really glad that you're here. And uh, so if you check I'm new, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and later on in the service, we'll pass an offering basket around. You can drop your communication card off then. And uh, by doing so, we have a gift for you. It's a book called How Good is Good Enough. And I'd love to give you a copy and meet you after the service. I'll be out in the lobby. Um, and so come and see me after the service. Uh, you've been attending a while. There's also a place on our communication card to communicate. Uh, if you've recently trusted Christ, uh, if you have prayer requests, you'd like more information about how to get involved in partnering with the ministry that we have together and serving. Uh, if you'd like more information about baptism, just anything you want to communicate, you can put that down on the communication card and also drop that off uh, in the offering basket later in the service. Inside the worship guide is our FYI section about things that are going on this week at Grace, so be sure to check that out. Um, and when you look inside your worship guide, there's a blue insert today, uh, as this is the time of the year when we're nominating deacons to serve in that role for this upcoming year. Uh, it's not a popularity contest. It's, it's uh, something that's based on um, some passages in Scripture. So be sure to give those a read. And uh, if you just see men that are serving in their small groups or serving here on Sundays, uh, please nominate them so that uh, we have a good group ready to serve this year as deacons here at the church. Um, also keep in prayer uh, our ladies uh, who are off at the women's retreat this weekend. Uh, I believe there's 25 women that went uh, over there this weekend. And I know God's done a lot of amazing things in their lives. And so be praying for them as they're coming back to, uh, to Laredo, that, that fire that, that they've um, experienced and just the encouragement would continue. So today we continue our series, Be Transformed. And I wanna welcome Pastor Chad as he continues. Good morning, Grace. We do continue our series, uh, Be Transformed Today, and if you're new with us, uh, we are in the book of Romans. We've been kind of working through this the last uh, several months. We took the first five chapters last uh, spring and, uh, and looked at them, and they really dealt with two key issues, sin and salvation. Uh, what our condition is, is, is people uh, separated from God and under his wrath, under his punishment, and yet his mercy sent his son to accomplish for us a work that we could never have done. And his son brought that for us and provides that for us completely. And now we're moving into the next section we've been in this series, uh, starting in chapter 6 to 8. We're going to kind of conclude this little section today on what's called sanctification. That's Christian growth. How do we grow as Christians? And we've been learning what that looks like. And today we have the privilege of looking at what might be one of the highest mountain peaks in all the book of Romans. This passage is probably one of the most well-known, uh, and, and rightly so. It shares some truths that are absolutely phenomenal for us. And we've been working through chapter 8 the last several weeks, looking at this concept of security. That God has been the one that's, that started this process and holds us securely in his hand. And we learned at the beginning of chapter 8 a few weeks ago that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Today we're going to see that there's no separation uh, for those who are in Christ. The security that comes with it. But that security is not a security as we learned last week when we talked about suffering. It's not a security that just says, hey, let's just sit back and do nothing. We're secure. It's a security that actually launches us out into this fallen, broken world. 
to accomplish the work God's given us as his people. And so in the midst of suffering that the Bible says you will experience as believers, even as non-believers in this fallen world, you can be secure. And today we want to really emphasize that truth. And there's three things I want you to see in this passage in Romans chapter 8. One of them is what is our assurance? We're going to look at this passage and, and, and look at it and see what really is God promising to us and for whom is it? What is our assurance? The second thing we're going to see that Paul talks about in here is why can we know that we have this assurance? What's the basis of it? So what is our assurance or what is our security? What is the basis for it or why can we know that we have it? And the last thing I want to talk about today is how you can know for sure that you have it. So what is that assurance? Why can we know that we have this assurance? And then lastly, how can I know as an individual that I have this assurance, this promise that God has made for us uh, in this passage? So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to be starting in verse 28 today and finishing at the end of the chapter, which is verse 39. Romans 8, 28. If you're new with us and, and are new to the Bible, there are some Bibles in the chairs in front of you, black hardcover Bibles. And if you look in your worship guide, uh, there's a spot where you can follow along with today's message as well. Uh, near the top has the passage that we're going to be looking at and the page number that you can turn to in that book. I'd encourage you to do that. Have it opened up and, and look and see where this passage is because I guarantee it'll be one you'll want to uh, go back to in the future because of the richness of this truth today. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. Let me pray, and then we'll jump into this passage this morning. Father, thank you for these truths, these truths that we sang about today, but these truths that are anchored in your word, but most of all, in your Son. Truths that he came to nail down and be that anchor for us that we could trust them and believe them. That he made them possible for us. And Lord, I, I pray that as we open your word today, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts, would open our minds to receive this word from you. A, a word that is a loving, good father. You long for your children to understand and to trust and to rely on. So Lord, wherever each individual is at this morning, my prayer would be that you would speak to them through this truth, that you would move in their hearts, that your Holy Spirit would work on each of us as only he can to remind us of who you are and who we are in light of that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans 8, 28 uh, through 39. I'm going to read this, and, and, uh, and we're going to read through the whole thing because I think it's just a great passage to read together. And then we're going to break it down into the three parts that, that we talked about. What is our assurance, or what is the promise made in here? Why can we have this assurance? And then how can I know uh, individually that I have this assurance. So the, the, the nutshell of this passage is in the first three verses. Paul gives the principle and the basis of the principle in the first three verses, and then the last several verses are really illustrating it, fleshing it out and showing us what it looks like. So follow along with me, and I'll kind of show you how you can see that in here. So here's the principle, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
for those who are called according to his purpose. There's the promise, and here's the basis now for that. For those whom he foreknew, meaning God, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, meaning Jesus, his Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there's the principle, there's the basis for the principle, and now Paul's just gonna say, so what does that mean? What does that look like? How does that flesh out? And the rest of these verses are illustrating, and he says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised. So he's saying Jesus was condemned in our place. That's what the whole beginning of the book of of Romans is all about. Chapter three and four elaborated on that truth. How can we be condemned if Jesus Christ chose to be condemned for us? He's saying who could bring a charge against us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, meaning all these circumstances, we are more than conquerors through him, Jesus, who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's take a look at this in those three sections that we talked about. What is First, what is our assurance? Second, why can we have this assurance? And thirdly, how can I know this assurance? So the first one is, is what is our assurance? And that comes right out of verse 28. That was the promise. And here's my point for you, and then we'll look at it. As a Christian, all things work together for my good. As a Christian, all things work together for my good. So let's look at this passage and and see this, why this is important and what the passage says and some misunderstandings that go with it. It says, and Paul kind of sandwiches something in this passage. The promise is in the middle, but he sandwiches who is it for on either end. He says, and we know that for those who love God, who loves God? The believer, his children, right? That's us. For those who love God, all things work together for good. And then he goes back to kind of sandwich it again. For those who are called according to his purpose. Who is it that's called according to his purpose? That's those who love God, Christians. Okay, this is a promise that is only for Christians. It is not true for those who are outside of Christ. So that's the first thing we have to understand. This is a promise that is only for those who love God, only for those who are called according to his purpose, for God's people, for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Second thing it's important for us to understand in this, that's a common misconception. This verse does not say that all things are good. Do you see that in this verse? Does it say anywhere in here, all things are good? It doesn't, does it? What does it say? 
that all things will be worked together for good. Okay, so don't confuse that with what this verse really says. A lot of people say, hey, it's all good. It's all good. We like to use that phrase, but, but it's not all good. Okay, death is not a good thing. So you shouldn't just pretend, oh, it's okay, they died, they're in a much better place. And that's true, we have that hope, but that does not mean that death in and of itself is good. It doesn't mean that evil is good. Even though God can and will work it for the good of believers, it does not make any particular sinful, wrong, evil action good at all. This verse does not say that in any way, and it's really important we understand that. It also doesn't mean that we don't grieve, as Christians, we, don't, we go, don't get angry, we don't become discouraged or even scared at times. It doesn't mean we throw out all those emotions that, that deal with loss or, or heartache because we know that all things are working together for good. It means we can have a hope in the midst of those things, but oftentimes Christians sometimes over-spiritualize the difficulties in their life because they misunderstand this promise. I love it. I won't, I won't read it to you, but you can read this. I encourage you, maybe write this down in your notes. Go to John chapter 11 and read the beginning of it. If you remember the story of Jesus uh, and Lazarus, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's hilarious in some sense to see this from God's picture because Jesus knew Lazarus very well. He knew Martha and Mary, Lazarus' sisters. He was very close with the family. It tells them that he loved them dearly. And, th- and he caught word when Jesus was a ways away that, that Lazarus was very sick. He was really sick. And they said, Jesus, come, come really quickly. And, and Jesus actually says this. He says, oh, this isn't unto death, but this is happening so that the Son can be glorified, so that you can see who I am. And it says he, he loved Lazarus. And when he heard that he was sick and, and close to death, it says Jesus loved him so much, it said, that he stayed where he was at two days longer before he went. Do <laughs> you ever read? That's hilarious. It's kind of funny, right? Because in God's eyes, he realizes none of this stuff is nearly as significant as we think it is. And he knows exactly what's going on all the time. We freak out. And rightly so, we're humans. But Jesus went there, and Lazarus was dead. By the time he got there, he was two days' journey away, so he waited two days. He traveled two days, and now it's four days that Lazarus has been in the grave, and they're saying, man, Jesus, you know, I don't know if there's anything you can do now. You know, if you'd have got here earlier, you might have been able to help him, or you probably could have healed him. And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing in that moment. In fact, it says Jesus wept. That's a memory verse for you. The shortest verse in the Bible is in John chapter 11. Jesus wept. It said he was deeply moved and even grieved when he heard some of the things that he heard. He experienced all those emotions in his humanity that you and I do. And he was God as well. So this promise does not mean that all things are good. Essentially what Paul is saying is that you can be assured of God's love for you no matter what bad stuff is going on inside you or what bad stuff is going on outside you? Inside you or outside you? You are assured that God loves you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've trusted him. Let me flesh that out a little bit for you because that's the heart of this passage and and what 
Paul is kind of getting at. And he says it in a couple different fa- passages. So in, in what inside you and dealing with what happens inside us as Christians. Paul says this in verses uh, 33 and 34, read them with me. They'll come up here on the screen. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Meaning a charge that that you're not a Christian or that you can't be saved. It says, it is God who justifies. Meaning God declares you righteous in Christ. Not you. You don't earn it. That's what the whole book of Romans has been about so far. He has done this for you in the person of Jesus Christ. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, meaning Christ Jesus was the one who was condemned for you and me. More than that, who was raised, showing that his sacrifice was sufficient, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Paul is teaching us in this passage, hey, no matter what's going on inside you, you can know without a doubt that God's love is secure with you. Because here's what's going to happen. If you're a Christian, and you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you're going to realize that some pretty awful things are going to pop up in your life. You're going to think some things that are really bad. You're going to do some things that are horrible. In fact, you're going to come to a point in your life where you're going to go, oh my goodness, I, I didn't know I was capable of such things. I see some of you nodding. I'm not going to share your names, but I, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Because just because you've been saved, just because you've been declared righteous, God is taking the rest of your life to weed that broken junk out of your life. And one of the reasons I believe we have this promise is because God wants us to be assured that even when you have to deal with some of the yuck that still dwells in your brokenness, that he loves you and you are secure in his love and you don't need to try to cover up or hide those things that he knows about already. You see, here's one of our problems as, as humans, even as we become Christians. We often think that it's our external circumstances that are the most threatening to our life. Oh, it's my finances. Oh, it's, it's you know, this, this threat of danger. Or it's just, or, or my, you know, career. Or I'm not sure what I'm going to do. All these external things. We think those are the greatest threats to our lives. But you know what? Your circumstances are the least of your dangers. Do you know what destroys a person? Their character flaws. The stuff you won't deal with inside. That's what ruins your life. It's your foolishness. It's our pride. It's our selfishness, our greed. Just read the newspapers. Rarely do circumstances. In fact, what often happens is circumstances seem to make someone come to the surface and almost shine, but it's our inward character flaws that, that not only destroy us here, but reach into eternity and damage what eternity could be like for us if we would let God deal with those issues in our hearts. And I believe Paul is speaking into that situation here to help us to say, hey, it's okay to to deal with these. It's okay in the church to admit that you're still broken, that you're still a work in progress. Instead of trying to hide it, thinking, well, if I I share what I'm really struggling with, I'm not even sure God could love someone like me. 
Church, it's amazing God can love any of us. In fact, it's a miracle that took his own son dying on a cross for him to do. You see, what it does is it, 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 it gets us to the, the second half of this, is that when we realize that it's the inward things that we need to work on, those are the most important aspects, it, it helps us realize that almost without doubt, and almost without exception, it requires difficult external circumstances in your life to get you and me to ever be willing to deal with the internal junk that really needs to be addressed. Are you with me? And that's why Paul spends some time on the external as well. This is a promise that no matter what's going on inside or what's going on outside, we can be assured of God's love. So Paul deals with some of the outside stuff as well. Look at what he says in verses 35 through 39. He's addressing, again, he's being broad sweeping, but his point is that anything, there's nothing out there. He says in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the, the answer is obviously nothing or no one. And then he goes on to flesh it out. Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or sword, or danger. And it is written, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, he says, in all these things, meaning in all these circumstances, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You see, if God has chosen to use trials and tribulations in the life of his people to shape and mold them, and I believe without a doubt he has, I believe you have to be blind to what the Bible says to think that when you become a Christian, life is going to get easy for you. God has and always has and always will in this fallen world used difficulties and trials and suffering to shape and mold his people. And if that's true, then wouldn't it be logical for a loving father to want to share with the children he loves a promise that could give us great security in him when we face him? That's exactly what he does. At the pinnacle of this book, he stops and says, don't let your external circumstances cause you to doubt how much I love you. No matter what comes your way, no matter what you face, recognize that I am using these things to shape you, to mold you, to conform you into the image of my son, not to harm you. Be honest with me. When was the last time in your life ease and comfort shaped your character in a positive way? Try it with your kids once. Hey, let me, here's, a, here's an experiment. If you have two or three kids, divide them up, put one kid over here and one over here, and say, I'm going to spoil this one. I'm going to give them everything they want. I'm going to make your life as easy as I possibly can. And then the other one say, I'm going to push you. I'm going to expect things of you. I'm going to I'm going to get in your life and, and deal with your issues and try that for 18 years, okay, and see how it turns out for you. You and I both know 
It was the most difficult things that happened in our lives, that came into our lives, often we never asked for, that have shaped us and molded us into the person that we ultimately want to become. Why would God be any different in this fallen, broken world? And he gives us this wonderful promise to encourage us, to strengthen us in the midst of us, to give us hope and to help us persevere through it. So that's what, what we can be assured of. We can be assured that no matter what's going on inside us or what's going on outside us, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've trusted him as your savior, that those things cannot separate you from God's love. They don't make a statement about whether he loves you or doesn't love you. But what's the basis of it? Why can we have this assurance? Well, Paul says that in verse 29 and 30, and we're going to see that in a minute. But let me give you my point, and then we'll tease this out a little bit, and we're going to get into more of it next week. Is, here's my second point. I know this assurance. Why can we have it? I know this assurance because of God's sovereign plan for my salvation. I know this assurance because of God's sovereign plan for my salvation. You see, in this second two verses, Paul's stating the basis of our assurance. He's saying, how can we know this? What's the basis? How do I know you're working these things out? And, and Paul goes on to say it in two of the most profound verses in all the scriptures. He says this in verse 29 and 30. He, he says, for, for means because, okay? So why, why can I know that all things will work together for good? Because for the reason is that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now there's the summary statement. Paul goes from start to finish in terms of what God's doing in us, and then he gives us a purpose clause for why he's doing that. Okay, let me just give you this really short because there's so, so much here we don't have time to cover it all. He says, for those whom he foreknew, that's the first step, that God knew people. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the end product. That'll happen the moment you come into the presence of God for all of eternity. So the first step is he knew us. The last step is you're going to be conformed to the image of his son from beginning to end. And then he tells us why in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you know what it means to be the firstborn among many brothers? That's an Old Testament imagery Paul's using. It means to be preeminent, to be the most important. The one with the largest inheritance was the firstborn in, in Jewish families. And he took care of the whole family. He represented the whole family after that. So God is doing this. He's saving you and me out of this broken world so that his son, who did that saving, could be preeminent, so that he could be the most glorified of all people for all of eternity. That's how important it is. That's exactly what Jesus said in John 11 when he looked at why he raised Lazarus, why he did what he did there, so that he would be glorified and the Father would be glorified. Now the second part, verse 30, gives us the details from the foreknowing knowing to the predestining there. He gives us the steps in salvation. He says, and those whom he predestined, meaning uh, predestined to that end, he also called. And that called means to actually hear him and, and follow him. And those whom he called, he also justified. We talked about that in chapter 3. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's the final step. Glorified is when you're shaped into the image of his son, when we're in his presence, the final step. 
he gives us this process. Notice what he says. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Any entrance or exit points in there? Whatever he did the first step to, he does the second to, and the third to, and the fourth to. He is going to accomplish the work that he started in you and me. God is sovereign in this process. Now, let me just pause here for a moment because next week we're going to dive into this even deeper than we do today. Today is just an intro. I'm going to tread into some waters that, that have a long history of controversy. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to be willing to go on this journey. Be willing to understand this, this concept of God's sovereignty even in our salvation. And I, re I recognize that as Western Christians, we struggle with the concept of God's sovereignty. We as Westerners have made an idol out of freedom. As Americans, we've made an idol out of freedom. We've taken it to a level that the Bible never really says we should have. So that's the context we often bring to this. I, I'm not going to demand that you believe what I believe about this. However, what I do want is I want all of us to believe what the Bible teaches on this issue. As well as being willing to struggle with an issue that may offend you at first. This offends a lot of people. It offended me the first time I came across it. And, and for a year plus as I studied it to say, what does the Bible really say about it? Because we often just ignore it because we don't want to wrestle with it. So I'm asking you to, to just pause and, and ask yourself this. First is, is don't think that just because you're offended possibly by a truth, that that truth is wrong. Because if you don't have a God who can offend you, then you don't have a real God. You've just made yourself and your thoughts God. And as long as what God says coincides with what you already believe, you're okay. But when it doesn't, what do you do when God says something that offends you? Is it possible that an infinite God who put all this into place might do something, might know something that would be offensive to you and me? Just, just a hypothetical. I know it probably isn't true, right? He asks us. He runs everything by me, I know, before he does it. So, so you're probably feeling the same way. So wrestle with me, if you will. Be willing to ponder, be willing to wrestle, and even be willing to be uncomfortable with some truths that God clearly teaches. And I hope to be able to help you along that journey a little bit, just as I was. So, so here's what we want to do in this passage. This word foreknowledge means more than just knowing something about. It can mean that. It can mean, oh, you knew something in advance, and that's true. It's used that way sometimes. But when it's used of God, it's used in a very unique way. It's not just knowledge about. It's, it's knowing a person in an intimate, very real, personal manner. He foreknew you and me, even before we did anything. Let me show you some passages that, that talk about this a little bit in the Bible and use this concept specifically with God. In Amos chapter 3, God says this about the people of Israel. He says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you 
for all of your iniquities. So Amos is, is God's getting ready to punish his children because they haven't obeyed him. But he says, you only have I known of all the families. He's saying, you Israel of all the nations, you only have I known. Now, we can struggle with this in a couple ways. We might go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. God doesn't know that there's other nations on the earth? He's unaware of that? Obviously, that's not true. But you only have I had an intimate, personal relationship with. He says the same thing to Jeremiah. You can read that. Read Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1, we're not going to go there, but he says the same kind of thing. Now go to Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. You hear this uh, when Jesus has people that come up to him and say, I've done all these things for you, God. I've done miracles or whatever. And Jesus turns to them and says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Hmm, wait a minute. Like someone came up that Jesus goes, whoa, I didn't know you were here. I didn't have any idea about you. No, he didn't have a, an intimate, personal relationship. There'll be all kinds of people that do outward religious deeds for God, but have never come to personal saving faith through Jesus Christ. They're just using religion as a way to feel good about themselves or to be a better person, but they haven't come to the point of understanding what salvation is. So when Paul says here that we were foreknown, that God foreknew us, go back to, if we go back to our Romans passage, he foreknew us, it means in Romans chapter uh, 8, 29 and 30, can you go back, go to the next slide, there we go, that he foreknew, that's in sense, meaning that God chose us. He looked into this world and he chose you and me in an intimate way to be part of this process, to be part of his process and his purpose in glorifying his son through his death. Now, let's talk about that a little bit. Do you see in this verse who is the primary acting agent? says, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This verse is one that gives us a window into God's viewpoint of salvation, into his sovereignty in that process. Now, understand, there's lots of extreme views on this. And, and here's what we have to understand, especially as Westerners. We have a tendency to, to go either it's this or it's that. That's our nature in the Western world. Well, it's either this or it's that. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not, it's not an extreme that God's sovereign and we're just robots and we don't have any choices, we don't do anything, and we're just going around doing whatever God tells us to do. That's one extreme that we come to as Westerners because we think it's an either or. The other is, well, man is free and we can choose to do whatever we want. And to, to go that route then is to say that God's not sovereign. Because if we are totally free, then God has no guarantee that anyone will choose him, which means there's no guarantee that his son will be preeminent in his purpose for sending him. And he's just waiting for the possibility of some of us to choose him. Those are the two unhealthy extremes. But the Bible teaches both of these things, that God is sovereign and that man is responsible for his choices. And nowhere does it say that you don't need to have faith, that you don't need to make that choice. But what the Bible does say is God's sovereignty is the overarching principle. 
And you and I fit within his sovereign plan so that even when we make choices, they never cross his ultimate sovereign plan. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't understand that. But you know what? I've come to be okay with that because maybe you haven't noticed, I'm just a finite little human being. I forget my kids' names sometimes, much less everything that's going on in this sovereign world. I want you to come to that point of understanding that that we tend to adopt this either-or mindset. Either God is sovereign or we're free, and that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches both of them. Let me show you a couple passages that, that have this tension beautifully put right within them, and maybe it'll help you in your journey. Genesis 50. Uh, remember Joseph's story? Sold into slavery by his brothers and sent to Egypt and then went to prison, all that kind of stuff. And here's where he meets them at the end and it makes this summary statement. He says, as for you, meaning my brothers who sold me into slavery, you meant evil against me. They made choices. They're responsible for them. But God meant it for good. God was sovereign in that whole process. He knew exactly what he was doing for Joseph to be there in Egypt, and he tells us why. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Amazing. Here's Proverbs 16.9, a principle. The heart of man plans his ways. See, we're not robots. We're not robots doing just what we're designed, destined to do. No, our hearts make plans. The heart of of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. There's his sovereignty. There's our responsibility. There's his sovereignty. The Bible never says it's either or. It's both and. I give God permission to do that. I think he can. Next one, Acts 2. When when Peter's talking about what happened in the person of Jesus Christ, this Jesus, he said, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So there's sovereignty. He says to them, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There's the responsibility that human beings did it, but they did it according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That should blow your mind, and it's okay, because God's huge compared to us. But let it sit there and challenge you. Don't try to run from one extreme to the other and, and fall into unhealthy truths. Jesus, or Peter said this, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They did it but they were doing only what God had predestined to take place. They were responsible. God was sovereign. I don't get it, but I'm okay with it. I've come to understand that both are clearly taught in Scripture. And this is something that we really need to think about better as Western Christians. Let me just ask you this, because here's one of the objections. we, We tend to use this phrase, well, God's a gentleman. He would never impose his will on anyone. Really? Have you read this Bible lately? But let me put it in a hypothetical question. If, if God is a perfect, holy, just, loving God, and he is, how bad could it be for him to impose his will whenever and however he wants? Just think about that for a minute. How bad could that be given his character? 
let me, let me illustrate this in an, an earthly way that's far inferior, but, but maybe can help a little bit uh, in a parenting illustration. When, when my kids were little, like kids do, they, they were crazy. They would want to run into the street to go after a ball. They'd want to take metal objects. And I don't know, what is it about outlets and homes that are like, hey, that looks cool. I mean, you have all this house and these teeny tiny little outlets and they run right for them with something to stick in there. I don't know what it is in kids, but, but they le- wanted to do that kind of stuff. And sometimes they'd go bolting towards the street to get a ball, and I'd literally run, and against their will, I would impose my will upon them. I would grab them and refuse to let them go into the street. They'd take an an object, and they would go to stick it into an outlet. And before they could do so, I would impose my ominous, horrible will upon them and refuse to allow them to make the choice that they wanted to make. You see where I'm going with this? I've never met a person that said, Chad, you're, you're a horrible father for imposing your will upon your kids for their good. So if we could possibly con- get that concept for us as humans, is it possible? I'm just throwing this out there hypothetically for you to wrestle a little bit. Is it possible that God in his perfect holiness for you and me might impose his will in a moment on your life for your good and him still be a good God. I just want you to think about that hypothetically before we jump to some wrong conclusions about God because of things that we maybe heard or believe but not grounded in the scriptures. Last thing we see in here, and, and, and next week, if you want to wrestle more with this, whew, chapter 9, we're going like, to be in the deep end, and you might need a snorkel next week. I'm, I'm serious. It, it is chapter 9. It, Paul's going to go on more and more because the basis of this, if God's sovereignty is in question, then all these promises are gone. That's the basis of these promises. You cannot have this promise of God working all things together for good. Think about it. If he is not sovereign, if he's at our beck and will, and he refuses to impose his will as a good God upon this earth, then we have no promise of all things working together for good. Zero. So I'm okay. I'm not okay, but I'll still love you if you want to reject the sovereignty of God. But you got to reject this promise then as well. Because as we saw, the two are deeply tied together. You cannot pull them apart. One is based on the other. So I want to close with this part of it. It, it, how How can I experience this assurance? How can, maybe you're here and you've never heard these truths or maybe you're still checking out church or maybe you're wondering, man, how could God ever love me? Or, or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you're in the midst of a mess so you go, how could someone that's known God for as long as I have still be wrestling with something like this or, or facing a circumstance like this? Here's my last point. As I experience this assurance through Jesus Christ, I experience this assurance through Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds kind of generic, but we're going to tease it out a little bit. Look at what Paul says in, in verses 31 and 32, right in the middle, kind of like a sandwich in this passage. He says in verse 31, he says, What then shall we say to these things? 
meaning the things we just said, all things working together for good and God's sovereignty and, and salvation. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, if God is sovereign, meaning he's the most overarching power in all the universe, if, if that's who God is, and I hope he is because otherwise, I don't know. What if someone else is against us that's stronger than him? What if my will is stronger than God's will? But if, if this God who is sovereign is for us, who could possibly be against us? And then he tells us why. Look at verse 32, one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul uses a, a common form of logic in his argument. He, he argues from the greater to the lesser. Meaning, he who didn't spare his own son. And if you know anything about the Bible, if you read John chapter 14 through 17 and just watching that little snapshot where we see how Jesus relates to his father and the love they have for each other, you'll see that Jesus is the father's most prized possession. That's why he's going to exalt him as preeminent for all of eternity and we will worship him for all of eternity. But he's saying, if he did not spare him to bring about this salvation for you and I, that's the greatest thing. That's the most inconceivable thing we could think of. How would he not much more give us all things? Meaning, make sure that we get home to where he intended us to get. That's a teeny tiny minor thing. For God to work out our issues in this life, our sicknesses, our, our struggles inside, our external circumstances, he's going, come on, guys, look what I did there. And if I did that for you, how could you doubt that I won't take care of these little details in your life as well? I want you to imagine something for a moment. Imagine you are standing at the foot of the cross on the night that Jesus was crucified. Let's say you, you had followed him his three years in ministry and you were there from the beginning. You watched him heal people that no one else had ever been able to heal. You watched him love people and welcome people that, that no other religious figure was ever willing to love or welcome. You heard his teaching and, and, and just like them, you're going, I've never heard anyone teach like this. And you experienced his love in a very real way. And you came to that point where you went, this person is like no one who's ever come. I believe, I really do believe, after all these miracles, after all his kindness, after all his incredible teaching, that this is God's son. And yet, three years later, you're standing there while this person, whom you've come to love like no one else in your life, is beaten, is whipped horrifically more than anyone you've ever seen. And you know that they had no case against him. He was the most loving person to ever walk this earth. And yet, there he is, beaten, whipped, forsaken. And you're going, how could this happen? How could someone so kind as him experience this. Why, God? Why would you let something like this happen? In fact, if you, were, if you were there, you would have heard 
The words come out of his own mouth. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus himself said those words. That moment on that day, you'd have no explanation. You'd have no possible way of understanding. God, how could any good possibly come from this? But the cross of Jesus Christ is like a spotlight that shines through time for every one of those who loves God, for every single child who has been called according to his purpose. That there might be situations in your life, there might be situations in my life, not might be, there are situations inside you, outside you, inside me, outside me, that I can't get a grip on, I don't understand, God, why would you let this happen? And whenever those happen to us, inside or outside, our tendency is to think, God, can you really love me? Man, if you knew what I was thinking, Lord, if you knew what I just did, how am I going to hide this? How am I going to keep anyone from finding out? Because if anyone finds out what's still inside me, they're never going to believe I'm your child. And God says, Chad, I condemn that in my son. Look at the spotlight I've sent through time. That didn't make sense that the most righteous, loving, kind person to ever walk this earth was treated like the worst of criminals. But it does make sense when you recognize that that same God was taking the, the worst of criminals that deserved that and was calling them out, was choosing them before you or I could ever do one thing that made us loving. He said, you're mine. And if you've done nothing to get here, there's nothing you can do to get away from my love. And I will finish what I started. I don't know where you're at this morning, but if you haven't trusted this God yet, then now is the best time to do so. If, if God's been using this truth and, and the Spirit's been working in your heart to open your eyes to who He is, to soften your heart to what His Son has done, then I want to encourage you now, call out to Him. Receive the forgiveness that only He offers through His Son. And start on this journey of absolute security in Him. I want to encourage you to take that step today and trust Him. For many of you, you've done that already. But this truth speaks to each one of us. It speaks to who we are as a church and it reminds us that, that, that even if we've been walking with Him for five years or 10 years or 20 years or 40 years, there is still stuff in this fallen, broken body that we've talked about in weeks past that will pop up, that will go, whoa. 
am I really a child? And you're going to want to doubt because of what comes up. And you need to look at that spotlight too. You need to recognize I was condemned so that you could be set free. You don't need to hide that. You need to share it. You need to walk securely in who you are so that you can be honest about that stuff that you've been stuffing for too long. And let God conform you into the image of his son. Even external circumstances, circumstances we try to ignore, circumstances we try to avoid talking about. And this truth says we can share that. We can be open about this as a church. We don't have to pretend we're someone that we're not because we didn't earn this gift. He accomplished it for us through his son. Imagine a church that was unafraid of future circumstances awaiting us, even amidst the amazing hope and phenomenal presidential candidates that we have before us. That's a joke. But imagine a church that wasn't afraid of of what was coming because we knew that no person, no thing, no ruler, no height, nor depth, nor life, nor death could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Imagine a church that that didn't have to hide those things that still pop up in our lives out of shame. Imagine a church that didn't have to avoid those circumstances that we face on the outside because they know that those things do not determine your security. In fact, those are the very things that God is using to chip away at your old self, to form you and and mold you into the person of his son. Imagine a church that wasn't full of pretenders anymore. It was just full of people overwhelmingly humble by the grace of God and leaning on each other as we're shaped and molded to be more like his son. That would be an awesome church. That would be a wonderful truth upon which they stood. Let's pray. Father, I don't pretend to even think I've scratched the surface of the depth of the richness of the promise that we read today, of the hope that we heard today. Lord, it would take an infinite number of lifetimes, it would take an infinite number of messages to come close to sharing the depth and the beauty and the richness of all that you are and what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. So Lord, would you in your mercy, in your grace, would you sow what needs to be sown into the hearts of your church today? Lord, do the work that only you can do in each of our lives so that we might know this promise we have in Christ and we might understand the beauty of your sovereign work in our lives that holds us as a sure grip through every single circumstance we might face. It's in Jesus' name we pray.